Greetings, friends and neighbors, and welcome to episode 10 of the Community Solutions Podcast, coming to you from the students, faculty, staff, and community partners associated with the Department of Social and Behavioral Sciences at the Indiana University Fairbanks School of Public Health in downtown Indianapolis, Indiana. I'm Jack Terman, Jr., a faculty member in the department and your host for this podcast. Our Community Solutions podcast neighborhood is spreading across the nation and around the world, and I want to thank you for listening and spreading the word about our podcast to your friends and neighbors. Working together, we really can build healthy, hope-filled neighborhoods where residents help, serve, and respect each other. On behalf of the entire Community Solutions team, I encourage you to subscribe to, follow, rate, and review our podcast. Today, our students Cassie and Mary Elizabeth converse with Professor Joan Duvey, a professor of health policy and management and the associate dean for public health practice. Joan truly works and speaks with a heart of compassion. She provides great knowledge and wisdom to help us understand addiction as a chronic disease. She addresses the wonderful outcomes of syringe services programs. These programs provide individuals with addictive disorders a place of compassion and non-judgment. It meets their medical and personal needs, all the while resulting in decreased HIV transmission, decreased syringe use, and increased access to treatment, food, clothing, and most importantly, hope. She stresses the vital role of broad-based community engagement in decreasing addiction and HIV and hepatitis transmission. So let's work together, my friends, to build communities that support the treatment and recovery of individuals suffering from addictive disorder. Let's join the conversation. This is Mary Elizabeth Campbell. This is Cassie Davidson. And I'm Joan Duvey. We're here to talk to, to Dr. Duvey about the needle exchange program and hepatitis C in the state of Indiana. So, Dr. Duvey, you have been quoted in several articles within the last year concerning needle exchange programs in Indiana. Can you describe the basis of a needle exchange program, including what is in the needle exchange kits? Sure. People commonly refer to, to these programs as needle exchange or syringe exchange programs, but I like to think about them as syringe services programs. Um, what they really do is provide a safe space for people who inject drugs to get sterile needles and other clean injection equipment, like clean water, clean cookers, alcohol swabs to clean their skin, um, and you know other supplies that they might need, like antibiotic ointment. Um, the importance of syringe services programs is that they really help prevent the spread of infectious diseases like HIV, hepatitis B, and hepatitis C. They also reduce the risk of skin abscesses and a really serious bacterial infection of the heart called endocarditis. We interviewed 200 people in Scott County who um, had injected drugs. Um, what they told us was that before the syringe services program was started in Scott County, nine out of 10 of those people who had HIV actually reported sharing needles. 
But after the outbreak and implementation of the syringe services program, that number actually decreased to less than one out of 10. So that's a pretty significant decrease. (laughs) Yeah. And as um, another study that we did was we actually talked to people. We did interviews um, and focus groups, and we had in-depth conversations with them. Uh, And what those people who with HIV who had continued sharing needles told us was that they only shared needles with other people who also had HIV. So that further um, reduced the risk of ongoing transmission. So they were um, actually educated about their disease. They had been tested, diagnosed, were educated, and were really concerned about other members in their community. And would actually save some of their syringes if somebody without HIV had come into the home and was going to inject with them. They would save clean syringes to give to that person so that person did not get infected. Um, The other really nice thing about syringe services programs is that they allow for safe disposal of used syringes. Um, That that keeps them off the streets, out of parks, and it also prevents reusing dirty needles. Um, But what I want to highlight is that one of the most important things about syringe services programs is that for a person who injects drugs, um, who's typically stigmatized and marginalized in the community, um, the syringe services program is a welcoming place. Um, they are not met there with typical fear and loathing, but they're welcomed with kindness and respect. They're offered preventive medical care, like vaccinations, um, like testing for hepatitis or for HIV. Um, they're offered education. They're also offered um, food, clothing, um, and hope. Uh, they're they're uh, educated about treatment for not only infectious diseases like hepatitis C and HIV and prevention services like pre-exposure prophylaxis to keep people from getting HIV, but also educated about the opportunities for treatment of substance use disorder. So during our interviews, one of the the people who um, did use the syringe services program in Scott County told us, I love the syringe exchange staff to death. They're nice people. They don't look down on you because we're just drug users. A lot of people think you're trash because you're an IV drug user, but they don't. It's the best thing. I'm so happy about it. Oh, that was nice to hear. Yeah. Isn't that nice? Well, I'm so glad that it's been a successful program that you guys have implemented. I do appreciate that. Um, So I'm going to play a little bit of devil's advocate and talk about the obstacles. So can you kind of identify some of the obstacles that you face when implementing the program across the state? Yeah, I think probably two of the biggest obstacles are misunderstanding and fear. And the fear stems from erroneous thinking, actually, that if you give people who inject drugs needles, they're going to inject more drugs. Um, We know that decades of research on syringe services programs has really clearly shown that this is not true. But what we've learned from Scott County is that many people using the syringe services program actually want treatment. In fact, the public health nurse who runs that program would say to me every time I went down um, and asked her, "What, what do you need, Brittany? She'd say, I need Suboxone. I need to get help people get the treatment they need to, to kick this, this, this chronic disease uh, and get into recovery. So what, what we saw um, f- from data that's been collected um, 
um, by uh, some folks at the School of Public Health is that over time, syringe use actually never increased, but HIV transmission did decrease dramatically. And for the first time, um, we've seen recently that syringe use per person has actually decreased slightly. So no increase in syringe use. Over time, mainly syringe use has, has stayed constant, but recently, um, as, as folks are become educated and they, they really are interested in getting into treatment um, and there is an opportunity for treatment now, that, that syringe use has, dec- has begun to decrease. I, I think many people um, misunderstand addiction and they don't really think about it as a chronic disease. So what they see is a person who perhaps steals money, who buys drugs um, illegally, um, and that behavior makes them seem like this is a moral lapse um, or a failure or a weakness. But what we know from scientists who study addiction and from doctors who treat addiction is that drugs of addiction, like opioids that we're talking about, um, heroin, morphine, or fentanyl, for example, um, actually cause physical changes in the brain, and specifically in parts of the brain that are responsible for cravings, for motivation, and reward. Um, They also cause severe physical pain and illness, um, especially for someone who's taken them for a while and then suddenly stops. Um, So these symptoms of of withdrawal can actually last for for over a week, um, but they resolve immediately with the use of of drug. So you can see the brain is sending these powerful messages, motivational signals to continue using the drug, and the body actually punishes people by causing the severe illness and pain for stopping use. Um, and that reward for reuse is almost immediate. Um, so it's a pretty vicious cycle. Um, and interestingly, once people do get caught up in this cycle, they actually become really desperate to get out. They, um, they really lose everything. Right? They lose their jobs. They lose their homes, their families, their children. They, they lose motivation to do anything except repeat the cycle of drug use. Um, and life becomes pretty hopeless for, for, for them. Um, they often try to quit on their own, and this more times than not leads to failure and, in the worst um, scenario, uh, leads to overdose and, and actually death. Um, so, Well, speaking of treatment, to go end on a little bit of a happier note, um, are there various options? I know you kind of spoke on this a little bit. Can you speak more in depth about the options provided to patients who receive needle exchange kits to get treatment for their drug addiction? Yeah. So this is um, one of the things that really has been amazing, especially about the Scott County story. Um, What we have seen is not only a decrease in transmission of HIV, and we're beginning to see a decrease in in syringe use, in syringe, uh, in needing syringes, the number of syringes needed, but we're also seeing a dramatic increase in the number of people who have access to treatment for addiction. In fact, um, as of December, 170 people 
have um, actually sought treatment for their addiction. And, and when I say treatment, I'm referring to evidence-based treatment, uh, in particular medication-assisted treatment, which we know to be to have the highest success rates in treating people with addiction. Un- unfortunately, um, access to evidence-based treatment actually for, for addiction in Indiana is very, very limited. So large communities may have uh, multiple treatment options, but even those uh, treatment facilities often have really long waiting lists and, and waiting times that can extend out to six months or even longer for wow. people to access treatment. That's and not okay. <laughs> it's not okay. And with uh, in somebody who who really is on that roller coaster ride of addiction, uh, there are opportunities where they just kind of you know hit that point of despair and they are ready for treatment. Right. And we really need to be able to respond holistically, compassionately at that moment and get them the, the access to the medication they need, to the, the behavioral health um, treatment that they need, and to recovery support that can help them be successful in that treatment. And when you look at rural communities, and we, we're, we, we've seen that this really um, this epidemic has hit our rural communities in Indiana pretty significantly. Um, it's even more difficult. Uh, there are many communities, many counties in Indiana that don't have any access at all to evidence-based treatment for addiction. So even with a syringe services program, if there is not um, somebody who's willing to provide treatment in that community, or if the, the community because treatment is sometimes stigmatized, is not willing to accept a treatment provider, then there's no hope of, of individuals getting the treatment they need to get into recovery. Um, it's a very sad situation. It is. Yes, it definitely sounds like it. So one of the things that I'm really happy to report is that we are working with the state of Indiana to actually increase the options for treating people with addiction. Um, and we are doing this by training providers in rural communities to offer medication-assisted treatment uh, and also training behavioral support personnel to work with them so that individuals have the opportunity for fully integrated care as they get treatment for their addiction and begin to lead that life of recovery. Okay, that sounds very, very, very cool. So uh, we, um, we are going to pick up a little bit where we left off and kind of talk more about hepatitis C and the syringe exchange program. Um, so can you explain the relationship between drug use and hepatitis C infection rates? Sure. Hepatitis C is a blood-borne pathogen. So when people inject drugs and when they share their needles or their injection supplies, If they have hepatitis C, the person with whom they're sharing now has been exposed to hepatitis C and will probably contract the disease. Hepatitis C is a very hardy virus and um, spreads pretty efficiently from one person to another person um, with the right exposures. Hep C can also be spread through sexual intercourse anytime there is the presence of blood or blood sharing um, and, and not intact skin. Um, but mostly we see really rapid spread of hepatitis C um, in populations who inject drugs. Goodness. Okay. So, yeah, you've 
you definitely hit on how it is transmitted and it being hepatitis C. Uh, could you please go into that a little more and discuss how patients are being tested for hepatitis C? Yeah, interestingly, there um, historically hasn't been a, a, a big push to test people for hepatitis C. Uh, the CDC um, published guidelines to test uh, baby boomers for hepatitis C uh, once they noticed that there seemed to be a large number of people in that age group who, for whatever reason, had been exposed to and infected with hepatitis C. Mm-hmm. Uh, with the injection drug um, epidemic, um, in particular the opioid and, and also meth amphetamine um, injection drug use, uh, we began seeing hepatitis C in younger in, pop, in people who are of younger ages. So now providers are urged to screen for risk factors and ask people if they um, have injected drugs um, or test them based on on their age or other risk factors. Um, men who have sex with men also are at, at higher risk for um, contracting hepatitis C. Um, so targeted screening um, has been has been recommended for hepatitis C. Um, what we know is that people with hepatitis C, people who inject drugs, don't actually go to their providers to get a physical. Right. So relying on traditional access to health care mm-hmm. um, may not be the the most efficient way to identify people. And it's really important from a public health perspective to know who has hepatitis C because we have very effective ways to treat and cure people for hepatitis C now. Um, Until people get uh, identified and into treatment and actually have a sustained virological response or cure, uh, they are at risk for ongoing transmission of hepatitis C in their community. So really trying to understand how we might um, find people who have risk factors for hepatitis C and get them tested um, has, it was critical actually in Scott County because HIV transmission really have the same risk factors. And what we learned was people with, um, with hepatitis C and HIV uh, could be could be identified in several different locations. Um, first of all, in addiction treatment facilities. Mm-hmm. So people who were being treated for addiction may have had exposures, and so treating them there um, or identif- t- doing testing in those facilities was really important. Uh, also, emergency departments. Mm-hmm. Uh, people who inject drugs often, as we mentioned in the previous podcast, develop abscesses or endocarditis, um, so they get ill and they will seek care in an emergency department. So do providing testing services in those emergency departments critical. And really, uh, jails are another opportunity um, because we know that incarceration, that people who inject drugs often have a history of incarceration. So, so testing in jails and in other correctional facilities like our state prisons um, can be um, very, very helpful. Um, but syringe exchange programs or syringe services programs probably have the, um, the, the highest um, it, rates of, of testing people. Um, they, the people who access syringe services programs um, develop a pretty trusting relationship with the folks who run those programs. And 
may be hesitant to get tested at first, but over time will often actually request testing um, as they understand that um, the if they are found to be to have HIV or hepatitis C, um, they're not going to be further stigmatized. Um, the, but the, the the syringe service staff are really going to try to to keep their best interest at, at heart and get them into treatment, and and really um, help them live a, a healthy life. That's amazing. That's absolutely amazing. Now, relating back a little bit to the previous podcast, and then you kind of touched on it a bit. But what um, types of education are provided at the needle exchange programs to patients about the symptoms of hepatitis C? Yeah, the the public health nurses who run syringe services programs or other folks who run the syringe services programs um, often provide uh, education, ongoing education. So it it may not be that the first time you go to a syringe service program, you get every piece of information that you need um, about the health risks of injecting drugs. Um, that first visit is really um, to establish a, a relationship and a trusting relationship. Um, but over time, because folks will come to certain services programs on a regular basis, once a week, once every other week, so there's an opportunity over time to continue to provide education and to build on the education that was provided at a previous visit. So. The, the health department staff may first just ask, have you been vaccinated for hepatitis B or for tetanus? And we can help you do that. And then they may ask, have you had an HIV test? Or are you interested in getting tested for hepatitis C? Or do you know what hepatitis C is? And amongst people who inject drugs, um, the, the risk of, of acquiring uh, one of these infections um, is usually identified in the community. And p- people understand that they may contract hepatitis C or even HIV from injecting drugs. Um, and, you know, so, so it, it is on their minds. Uh, the health department nurse or who, whoever is running the syringe exchange program can then build on that and say, here are the symptoms of hepatitis C. If you start to notice that you are becoming jaundiced, for example, or if you start to, to develop pain um, in your abdomen, um, or if you start noticing that you're getting swollen, um, these might be symptoms suggesting that you have hepatitis C. Um, but we can test you for that, and there is treatment. So always ending up with there is hope, mm-hmm. and we can help you take care of yourself. That's exactly. so encouraging to hear. Yes, it like, is. Yeah. Guys, don't lose hope. Right. <laughs> there is help. You just have to seek it out. Yeah. So, Dr. Juvie, um, we have some projects that we're working on, right? Are you working on some projects? Yeah, we have just <laughs> actually launched an ECHO project. ECHO stands for Extension of Community Healthcare Outcomes. And what ECHO is, is it's using case-based learning uh, to work with healthcare providers in rural communities, and these can be family docs, they can be um, advanced um, practice registered nurses, um, or physician's assistants, and we have a panel of experts here centered at the university um, who really know everything about hepatitis, um, who really are, um, we have a social worker who can help people access care in their community, wraparound services, maybe help link them to insurance. We have a pharmacist who can really work with us to make sure we're not 
um, making recommendations that might have drug-drug interactions with other drugs. Um, it's really a panel of experts who can provide um, a, a full spectrum of education for the providers in the community about treating patients with complex medical conditions like hepatitis C. So the providers in the community will um, be encouraged to identify risk factors for hepatitis C, to screen patients for hepatitis C, and then to present patients to um, the other providers who are on the call. We often have 20 to 25 providers on the call at one time, so it's a group learning situation. And somebody will present a case, and then everyone will discuss the case and we'll come up with some recommendations for the provider who is actually seeing that patient. What happens is that over time, with multiple case presentations, um, providers become actually experts at treating hepatitis C in their own communities. And so we've expanded access to hepatitis C treatment to rural communities where that wasn't available previously. It's really amazing. Yeah, I really like that. I appreciate that because there's a lot of communities, like you said, that are unable to access that health care that they need. Uh So this is nice to hear that there is still hope, like you've mentioned, Mm -hmm. for these people to receive the care that they do need. Yes. Now, I think I kind of know the answer already, but I just want to double check. What's been the reception to Project ECHO so far? Yeah, we've had a pretty enthusiastic response. Um, So, so far, we have 27 providers who are registered from 10 counties across the state of Indiana. Wow. Um, So we have rural counties. We have urban counties. They're really, um, with an increase in hepatitis C that we're seeing in Indiana, there's need everywhere. One of the um, hepatologists at Indiana University told me that there is at least a six-month waiting list to get treated for hepatitis C, and that's at a medical center. So you can imagine in a rural community where there hasn't been access to treatment for hepatitis C, um, that that this is really going to be well-received. Yes, certainly. Yeah. Wow. So, Dr. Dewey, that is a lot of information, um, a lot of necessary information that we definitely need needed to hear. Um, so, as we wrap up this podcast, can you give us a little bit of advice to any kind of concerned listener who would be interested in bringing their syringe exchange program to their community or who would just like to get involved to either volunteer, to provide access, or even support and education to those for the syringe exchange program? Boy, that is that that alone could be a <laughs> podcast. Um, what I would recommend, we know that community engagement makes for successful syringe services programs. And what we've seen is that in those instances where um, the the community has been less involved around the um, decision making and the implementation of the syringe services programs, there has actually been, some uh, misinformation, misperceptions, mistrust. And um, that has led to um, really outcomes that that don't support um, harm reduction in the community. Um, I think that working with the community, and that community includes faith-based members of the community, it includes law enforcement, it includes um, people who work in correctional facilities, uh, it includes healthcare providers, it includes you know schools. Everybody in your community has a stake in keeping needles off the street and in 
preventing the ongoing transmission of HIV and hepatitis C, but also in getting people into treatment and into recovery. And we know that the touch point of syringe exchange program is that you build a trusting relationship with a healthcare provider, and that healthcare provider then um, can work with you to get you access to treatment when you are ready for that treatment. So um, get involved in your community in any way possible, whether it's providing meals, um, doing clothing drives, um, stopping at the syringe exchange program and asking, is there a way I can volunteer? Um, Working with law enforcement to keep your parks and your streets safe and clean. Um, uh, Carry naloxone. Get trained to use naloxone um, so that you can keep people alive, actually, so that they do have an opportunity to get into recovery. Very sound advice. Thank you so much, Dr. Duke, for taking the time to be oh, with us Oh, you're today. welcome. Yes, thank, thank you. you.